Good morning, High Point. Happy Mother's Day. Um, today we'll be reading God's word for his people from 1 John. We'll be reading chapter 1 and the first two verses of chapter 2. This is on page 1856 in the Pew Bible. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you that we have seen and heard, so that you may also have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is the word of the Lord written for his people. Amen. Thanks, Femi. Howdy, High Point. How you guys doing? Good. We're doing a new series called Standing Secure. Or Secure Standing, sorry. And here's why. In 1 John chapter 4, this is a passage where I'm going to be preaching on today, but this is, I'm going to lay this over the whole series. It says this, starting in verse 16. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us. You listening? This is how, he's about to tell us how love is made complete among us, in addition to what he's just said in the, first, in the sentence before. This is how love is made complete among us, so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Now, in the most literal possible sense, obviously you can fear things that aren't punishment, right? You can fear getting some terrible illness or whatever. What he's saying is, is that <clears throat> every soul that is not in some quivering form of anxious fear is at peace. It's a thing that's mentioned a number of times in 1 John. That when people are actually at peace, 
of heart entirely. They're at peace. Because there's no fear, because there's love, love comes out like God's love. And what it produces is fellowship. The word fellowship was in our passage for today three times. And John says in the first couple of verses, it makes our joy complete. So he, lay, he lays out an entire doctrine of human flourishing in like six verses in a book that is only four pages long. Which probably means I shouldn't have to preach for 50 minutes, right, Dave? Um, what he's saying is this. Security, a sense of security, and a sense of happiness are two indefatigable, they're unconquerable human desires. And they're gifts of God. Because ultimately our desire to be secure and our desire to be happy will drive us to do whatever we have to do. And if sin is inherently self-destructive, it will either drive us down a road of ultimate damnation and self-destruction, or at some point we will realize it is destroying us and there is only one other option, and we will give ourselves wholly to God, in whom we will find ultimate security and ultimate happiness. And it is only then when there is actual, real, internal, personal security and happiness flows out of that and in love that fear and its attending pride can really be put away and we can actually live lives of love. Now, the reason why this is important is, is because he refers to specifically in relationship to death and judgment, that is damnation and hell. And I cannot tell you how many people in our secular age have basically said to me, if Christianity is going to survive or be good for anybody, it's got to get rid of the whole doctrine of hell and God's wrath and all of that. God has to be loving and nice and those sorts of things. And that is first-rate incandescent poppycock. Because, and the reason for this is, is, is this. A human being that understands that they are a creature with meaning and an animal with life recognizes that security and our sense of not having, having it resides ultimately in the fact that we are going to die life and we are going to be judged meaning. And all of that relates into one claimed reality that God is and that all humans die and after that face judgment. And that is the greatest possible seat of real perfect human terror. Fear and trembling as it's supposed to be. That that place, the place that I'm going to die and after that judgment and there's going to be this place where I am going to be judged by God. That is the root of all proper human sense of insecurity and fear of the ultimate destroyal of all possibility of happiness. And God claims there's a single solution to this universal, total, cosmic, and existential problem that is the deepest possible fear and insecurity any human can properly feel. And that is that God himself has provided a substitute for our sins and an atonement to bring forgiveness and deliverance for every human being who will believe in Jesus and experience his forgiveness and his transformation that comes through this miracle of Christian salvation. And when that gets sorted, it sorts every other human insecurity. That's John's claim. 
John's claim is, is that the utility— now, the truth of hell and damnation is a sermon for another time. It is true. The utility, the meaning and purpose is that when we deal with the reality of death and judgment in Christ, it sorts and settles every other human insecurity. Every fear that insecurity produces, every act of pride that it covers, which then comes forward in all versions of sin and self and destruction of others, and that destroys the possibility of our joy being complete. And so my argument is this. These four pages of First John literally frame every moment of every day of your entire life. Every word, every thought, every reaction, every movement, every relationship, every choice, every use of your schedule, every single thing is framed by whether or not you have secure standing. And you know it. Not just that you have it, but one very large step in addition to that, that you know you have it. Now, um, I don't know what the clicker is. Um, we have this statement about assurance in our doctrinal statement at High Point Church. This is in our Constitution and Bylaws, and it says this. And listen carefully, because when I get done, you should have a problem with it, okay? Even though it's right. I think it's totally right. You should have a problem with it. Okay, ready? We believe that once saved, we can never be lost, for we are born of incorruptible seed. We are given everlasting life, are sealed for the day of redemption, and our life is hidden with Christ in God. We are given knowledge and assurance, that is, we can know this is true, of eternal life. We are assured of no condemnation nor separation from God. We are nevertheless warned not to accept the grace of God in vain, but to work out our own, own salvation with fear and trembling, to seize the hope set before us, and to take heed lest there be anyone in anyone an evil, unbelieving heart leading one to fall away from the living God. Anybody notice two different themes in that paragraph? That there's this really strong theme of like, hey man, you can know, you can receive incorruptible seed. Once you're saved, you are saved. It's good. You're good. It's cool. And then, but we also have to remember that you can accept the grace of God in vain. That you can be, you can say you're a Christian but have a sinful, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. You have to seize the hope that's set before you. And in all this assurance, you should still be working out your salvation with fear and trembling. Right? Now, why does it say that? And here's why it says that. Because that's what those verses say in the Bible. That's what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches all of that about our assurance. The Bible teaches that we both work out our salvation with fear and trembling— and that we can enjoy a strong sense of profound divine assurance that grounds our entire life in secure standing and pushes out all fear, its attending insecurity, breaks down pride, and releases us into a life of mature and complete love. 
And that's partly because if you deal with this fear, with fear and troubling, when you find your assurance in that, in what Christ has done, in the real place where fear and trembling belongs before Almighty God, it creates a secure standing that sends you out into the entire world. Our secular neighbors believe that if we believe in hell or if we believe in damnation, that we really deal with that question in our hearts, it'll make us religiously neurotic, and it actually does just the opposite. It grounds us in a deeper sense of personal security than is achievable through any other human religious, philosophical means. There's, there's three reasons I think we should, it's worthwhile spending seven weeks on this book. One is, First um, John covers both the doctrines of the gospel and what it means to really live like a Christian all in four pages. And so if you're newer to the Christian faith, or especially if you're going to mentor somebody and you're going to read the Bible together as part of that mentoring, I would not encourage you to go to Romans or James. You can accomplish all of that in less space in four pages in the book of First John. And so if you're not going to go through the gospel of Mark or the gospel of John with them, First John is like a great— Another book. And Christians just ignore it because it's a tiny book in the back of the Bible. Secondly, the other two are much more important. Second is, because I believe all of our sense of security is wrapped up in the deepest possible places of peace of heart, I actually believe that not only being a Christian, experiencing redemption, but knowing it is something that God wants you to have, and it's actually necessary. For all the fact that in the present modern world, secularity has basically said it is uncool and epistemologically falsifiable that you can be sure about anything. And so it's, it's cool to be like, well, I don't want to be dogmatic about it, but let me say this really dogmatic statement that all my media sources support. Right? That's kind of how people live. They act like they're not sure about things. They're still just as dogmatic as ever. But generally speaking, you're not supposed to act sure of things, especially something spiritual like that you're going to heaven. Like that seems it's like the most— it seems like it's like the most offensive possible certainty of belief you could have in the present culture. Because it just sounds like, what can it create but a seething self-righteousness? But in fact, what the book of First John says all the way through is, no, no, it's actually really critical— in fact, the, the greatest um, modern historic age where the doctrine of assurance came out in the, its greatest modern flourishing was in the um, evangelical revivals of the 1700s in England, the same time when England grew a conscience about the slave trade and ended it. It just isn't true that if you have divine assurance of your salvation, that that has to produce some kind of seething self-righteousness. What it can produce is a deep enough security to drive out fear and actually produce the deepest kind of love and joy. And the third reason this is important is I actually believe that insecurity—I'll just tell you, as a pastor, this is what I deal with all day, and I don't just mean in me. I, almost everybody I sit down and talk to in relationship to ministry, something about the question, the frustration, the struggle, the something, is almost always coming back to their insecurity or dealing with the insecurities of others. Because all of our negative reactions and our responses and the way we sin against each other, these are all manifestations of fear and pride that are coming from a very unsettled heart that is not utterly at peace and does not have the assurance that it requires. If you were going to guess, aside from the 
insecurity of will I eat? I mean the internal human psychological insecurities over the last 20 years, and you had to bet they were up in total or down in total. What would you bet? Who's for up? Right? Who's for down? See, most of you are too insecure to vote. (laughs) Yeah. It's about three quarters up and one third down in terms of people's opinions. Um, Generally speaking, um, it is just not obvious that we are becoming a more secure people. We aren't. I'm sorry, but what I see constantly is this ever-flowering monstrosity of modern, late, secular, terrifying insecurity. It's one of the reasons why people are getting more angry. It's one of the reasons why people don't talk to each other. It's one of the reasons why people separate so much. They can't deal with personal stress. If somebody makes a comment they don't like on Facebook, they have to tear the keyboard out of the wall and, like, scream and break it over their knee and cuss and swear. It's it's just, it's so obvious. Um, Now, it may just be we have more technological outlets for our insecurity, like Instagram, you know? Um, But it it may not be, right? The point is, is that I think that we need to deal with this this whole issue, because if we don't, if we're not a people that deals with insecurity, then we'll be a people that grows insecurity. Um... My goal in the next two slides is not actually to talk about all the corporate and personal costs of insecurity. My goal is to just to overwhelm you as to the effect of insecurity. We underplay the result and impact of insecurity terribly. Because we see it as part of a function of who we are, because it's embedded itself so deeply in our character, we think of it kind of like in the terms of like, well, to err is to be human, like this is just who I am. Listen, Christianity is built on the premise that that is no proper human should ever say that about almost anything. I mean, unless it's like respiration. And so when we don't deal with insecurity, there are all kinds of ways in which we destroy each other. Just in the church, you can go through lots of these, and I had to cut this list about in half to fit it on a slide, right? There's competition where there should be cooperation. There's all kinds of fabrications of spiritual gifts and spiritual knowledge. Like, how many times have you had somebody be talking to you about something, or that, and you're like, why are you telling me this? You're not telling me this to bless me or help me. You're just, are you trying to convince me that you're like a really super Christian guy or something? Why does my opinion matter? Right? Or we just sin, we just do what we want because we're pragmatic because, and so we dishonor Christ in our, in our um, disobedience. We wrong, oh, oh, this is a great one. I cannot tell you how many people are in full-time ministry and have imploded churches because they thought people would like and affirm them if they became a pastor. It's terrible. In fact, almost any area of public trust, ministry, politics, law, like there's a lot of places where like you're out in front of people. Those positions all draw the best and the worst people. And of course, most people are a combination of the two. And there's lots of other reasons, but let's go to the next one. You can also talk about just all of the very predictable personal effects of undealt with and unfaced insecurity. And this is about a five-minute list whether it's just basic anxiety that comes out of a place that isn't a peaceful heart, whether it's avoidance of the real problem that's going on in your relationships that you don't really want to face because you just don't want to be called names again because when they call you those names, you believe them. Why do you believe them? 
They hurt you and you believe them because you are not completely secure in who you are in Christ and you don't have the capacity to simply let those pass over you and not matter to you. There are so many personal effects and all of those personal effects are like snowballs rolling down hills hitting other people. And the presence of our massive insecurity in so many ways demonstrates two things. One, that we don't take sin seriously because these things are torturing the other people in our lives. And two, we're not assured. We say that we're Christians, we believe the message of the gospel, but when we don't live out of a place of secure standing, it shows that in every place where that is ignited, we don't feel secure. And I think it's important to recognize that we are not innocent victims in the devastation of our insecurities. We are not innocent victims. It's one thing to, like, be driving down the road going 55 miles an hour in your own lane with your seatbelt on and have some, like, coked-up idiot pull across with this big truck and kill you. You're a victim. Like, you're just a straight-up victim. That's all there is to it. <clears throat> if you smoke two packs a day for 42 years, and at some point in your middle 70s, you get lung cancer, are you a victim? Right? So, okay, so— I'm being a little technical here, but I would argue, yes, you're still a victim. Like, something is happening to you that's terrible that you didn't want, and on some level, maybe you could argue you didn't entirely expect. Right? But are you an innocent victim? No. No, what happened to you was very predictable, right? And so there are a lot of things in our lives where we would like to believe we are entirely innocent victims, and we are, in fact, victims. Something we don't want is happening to us. But we are not innocent victims. In most of the places socially where we want to pretend we're innocent victims, we aren't. Because we haven't dealt with our real insecurities, because we aren't actually secure in the gospel, we do certain things and have numerous personality traits that are producing terrible things in our lives and the lives of others. And when those things flare up, it just feels like a fire out of nowhere. But we have been seeping gasoline for months, years, or decades. And we want to believe that we're victims, and we're not victims. We're people who don't believe the doctrine of justification. We aren't secure in Christ. We don't believe sin is all that bad. We aren't growing in sanctification. And we are picking the exact fruit that plant ought to grow. The irony of insecurity is that ultimately, at the bottom, under the fear and pride, it's a form of self-salvation. We don't believe in Jesus. We don't believe he can be trusted with our salvation. There's this old passage in Ezekiel that says, the people of Israel leaned on Egypt, right? They were in trouble with somebody from the north, so they asked this other country to come save them. And he said, it's like a staff that you lean all your way on, and it snaps. And when it breaks, there's this sharp part, and you were leaning on it, so you fall forward, and you wrench your back, and the point sticks into your shoulder and impales you. That is God's metaphor of self-salvation. We find something else to lean on. For them, it was a country to save them from an impending war. For us, in our insecurities, it's all kinds of things. Friends, what God says is that thing, whatever that is, that you're hoping in, 
that you think that you can control and utilize to get what you want is like a staff that when you lean on it, it will snap at the most inopportune moment and it will displace your disc and it will drive a point into your shoulder that you did not expect. And you will have only yourself to blame, though you will be a victim. The irony of insecurity is this. Fearing we are weak, we try to save ourselves. Let me think about that. If insecurity leads us to fear and pride, if in fear and pride we seek methods of getting what we feel like we need, so either insecurity or happiness through means we can control, then it is self-salvation. It is not divine salvation, which means we are managing our own salvation, which means the irony of insecurity is this. Fearing we are weak, we try to save ourselves. The entire book of 1 John is saying as directly as possible to us. Reliable security just doesn't come from us. There is no resignation or meditation. There is no philosophical worldview. Even if you take Christianity and all the best of its philosophy, it still isn't going to do it. A ph- if when you, philosophy can't save you from death. Philosophy can't save you in judgment. Philosophy does not remove grapefruit-sized tumors from, or- from ovaries. Philosophy doesn't do that. I love philosophy, and I wish it did that. But it doesn't. Only God can bring the kind of security holistically in terms of our understanding of the world, philosophy, in terms of our belief of what's going to happen to us, in terms of our future provision, in terms of what our life means, in terms of all of that. That can only come from God's assurance. So there's two things to say about this, and I'm only going to get through the first today, since I only got through the first last hour. And that is that assurance is reality-based. Now, this is important for a very specific reason. Um, Sometimes we talk about salvation in what I would call the math approach. Okay? Now, before I tell you this, I'm going to make fun of this approach, but this approach is actually 100% true. Okay? So the math approach goes like this, and sometimes people use a method called Roman's Road, which is totally fine. It's about how you use it, not that you use it. The Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That is, we're all sinners. Okay? Just says that. It's true. Secondly, it says the wages or the result, what you ought to be paid back for sin, is death. Right? So you've sinned. So what you ought to get for sin is death, and in that context, it includes death and damnation and all those fun things. Okay? Now, and and then, Romans says, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, right? So, in place of that wages of death, you can have the payment of Christ so that you can have eternal life, right? And Jesus paid for your sins. Which sounds a little bit like this. On your side of the mathematical ledger, you've got all red ink, right? You've got a ton of red ink that you need to deal with to mildly quote Black Widow in the first Avengers movie. Right? And on the other side of the equation, you have Jesus value, which is like all in the black, right? And essentially, if you will acknowledge that Jesus died for you, you get to move from this account into this account, whatever is necessary. And so you get to. Now, that is both true, utterly true, yet by itself— a ridiculous false sham. 
on one level, that is exactly how Christian salvation works. Christ died for our sins. It says in 1 John 2, 1 and 2, that Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. It says in the verses above it, if we confess our sins to God and we believe in Jesus, he is faithful to forgive our sins and purify us from unrighteousness. Right? Later on, it says that in that he offers us eternal life. So that's actually totally right. We are in great moral debt, the price of which is damnation, and Christ does die in our place, converting his righteousness for our deserved damnation. That's called the doctrine of imputation. Jesus dies as a substitution for us. Now, here's why... A lot of people hear that and they say either that's too good to be true or that's a scam, right? Cynical people, well, both are kind of cynical, but some people are like generally positive, but they'll just be like, that's just too good to be true, i.e. it doesn't smell right, or that's a sham, i.e. it doesn't smell right. Why doesn't it smell right? Because it's not the whole story. That's actually not what Christian salvation is. Because the assumption there is that's all there is to it. You're good. And there's no more of the story you absolutely have to tell. There is more of the story you absolutely have to tell. What the story that you absolutely tell is, is that when that happens, a miracle of regeneration happens that creates an absolutely new creature, creation, that belongs to and is like Christ, and that is fundamentally transformed in its very being, that walks in the light and serves Jesus and is changed and that that happens every time the transfer happens. That grace always produces something, and it always produces a completely different creature. So look at the first few verses here. This is the message we have heard from him, that is Jesus, and declare to you. So this is the message of the gospel. And this is how he starts it. God is light. In him, there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all or every sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word has no place in our lives. Now, do you see how that works? The, the message of the transfer, right? That's in there, right? It's in there. It says, if we confess our sins, he will forgive us, right? Jesus died for our sins. He's the atoning sin. All that is in there, but that is not all that's in there. Something else is in there, that God is light, and if we claim to walk in him, we are going to walk in the light. And we have to confess our sins and submit ourselves to Jesus, and if we don't, we are profoundly self-deceived. You see, the question of the book of 1 John is not the question of salvation. The question of the book of 1 John is the question of assurance. And the difference between salvation and assurance is this. Salvation happens by a supernatural act of God. Assurance is the question of its authentication, which is totally different. It's totally different. 
The question of assurance is, I think I became a Christian. Did I? Now, you might say, no, wait, whoa, wait a second, Nick. It says right there in like Romans 10, 9, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. That's true. Here's the problem with that. Did you believe in your heart? Did you believe in your heart? Is what you, is what, is the emotions that presented themselves or that you concocted, do they count as faith? In whatever mustard seed minimal amount of faith is necessary, is it faith? Was it real enough? Or are we self-deceived? You see, because if we don't claim to be Christians, then we're not Christians. The, issue, the question with assurance is not, are you a Christian even though you don't think you're one? No, if you don't think you're a Christian, you're not a Christian. The only possible way you can be a Christian is if you think you're one. Except for this one possible exception with very interesting arguments about the unevangelized, which I won't get into now and I probably think is wrong. But you're not, you're not, right? The question is, if you say you are a Christian, then what? And you see, twice in this passage, John says, here's the possible problem. The possible problem is, is that it's not actually that unheard of for you to be entirely self-deceived. It could be that you think that you're a Christian, that you say that you're a Christian, that on some level you have said that you believe in Jesus, but you don't. Because if you believe in Jesus, you will walk in the light like Jesus is the light. You will. And if you don't, then what? Now, let's go one more step. In the whole book of 1 John, there are seven main criteria for tests for ourselves to test whether or not we're really in the faith. Because the question is, are we, did what we think happened to us really happen to us? Now, on one level, you can be like, well, this isn't a very nice sermon. Okay. It is a very nice sermon in two senses, other than it being aggressive. It's nice in one sense in that if you've been trying to be a Christian and it is not working and you feel like you have no internal resources and you don't the issue may be that you're not doing it right, so to speak, like you've misunderstood the gospel. One possibility, though, is, is that you actually aren't a Christian. It could be that what, what, whatever happened, whenever you thought you became a Christian, was actually, what happened was a kind of self-deception, a kind of a desire to just be relieved of maybe a fear of hell, or um, something kind of pseudo-religious that you kind of slid into, or something was particularly happening that made you a little susceptible to the message that day, or something, and you kind of did something that was sort of like accepting Jesus, or you accepted Jesus, and you even cried, but you didn't realize it was entirely self-involved, and had nothing to do with what the Bible calls repentance and faith. That you didn't release everything you have, are, and can claim for yourself. Every little shack of self-salvation concoction that you've been pounding together for your life. You didn't really burn that all down and let that all go and receive everything that Jesus had for you. You did something else. There was some admixture of your own concoction of that salvation, and Jesus doesn't accept that. That's called another gospel in the book of Galatians. And it could actually be incredibly good news for you if you realize that you've been being religious, but actually the miracle of regeneration as a divine action of salvation 
that you haven't actually experienced salvation. And, and, and then it's, it's simple. You don't have to like do all these things. You just need to go to Jesus. Really. The other way that this could be a nice sermon is this. When you go to your small groups or when you get together with your mentor or when you talk to your spouse, you can ask them, do you think that I am falling out of love with the world? Do you see that in me at all? Now, you might get a hard answer and be like, mm. that means no, by the way. Um, but you might get this answer. I totally have. And you may not have seen it because over the last two years, like, it's been so gradual for you that you don't, you kind of feel like you're sort of stuck and in the same place. And the minute you ask a Christian friend who really cares about you, they'll be like, no, I have totally seen movement with you. I can totally see that you love Jesus. I can totally see that you are learning to love other Christians. I can totally see that you're falling out of love with the world. I can see that in you. And that's really encouraging because that doesn't mean you're a good person. It means there is evidence of the real grace of God that is transforming you, which is assuring that you are really a Christian. You are saved. Now, the first and biggest thing is just you have to believe in Jesus, that Jesus is the Christ. He is the incarnate Son of God who's come in the flesh and has died for your sins. If you don't believe that, John says, you are making God out to be a liar because that's what God has said in the person of Jesus and in testifying about Jesus. And so somebody's telling the truth and somebody's lying. And so if you say Jesus is not the Son of God, that's what you're saying, and either you're a liar or God is. Because you're not saying, I don't know if Jesus is the Son of God. You're saying he's not the Son of God. Which means you are affirming something, and that is a testimony. And if you don't know it, you're a liar. Or God's a liar, and the whole thing is wrong, but it's not both. And so in order to be a Christian, the first thing is you have to believe in Jesus. The second is, is that you should love your brothers and sisters in Christ. And that does not mean you don't love people who are not Christians. What it means is, is that to the extent to which the grace of God is working in your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, the image of Jesus is being remade in them. You should find, when you see that in somebody else, you should find that divinely attractive. And you should be drawn to it, and you should want to be in relationship to it, and you should want to fan it into flame and to love the objects of Christ's affection. And so if you can't love concrete human beings, there's one point where John says, oh, it's exactly like this. If you can't love the concrete human Christian in front of you, let's not pretend you love the spiritual risen Jesus that you haven't actually seen yet. Because remember, all of these aren't, you don't have to do these to become a Christian. These are all red lights on the divine bs meter as to whether or not we're really Christians. Because assurance is based in God's grace, and it is also simultaneously based in reality. It should not be incredibly, profoundly strange for us to believe that in order to be a Christian, we would have to be a Christian. Obeying God, God's commands, this one's pretty simple. <clears throat> if God has explicitly said something in Scripture, and you say that you love him and he's in charge, that is, he's Lord, and he's the one who rules all things, and then you just do whatever the heck you want, you aren't a Christian. Now, I am not talking about sins of infirmity. 
I'm not saying you want to follow God's, what God has said, and you just aren't strong enough. You lack discipline, you lack perspective, you lack support, you lack something like that. This is like the classic, like, guy who's looking at porn and can't stop, but he, he realizes that he's a disgusting John and a pervert, right? He gets that. Like, he realizes he wants to be something else, and he wants to follow Jesus, and he wants to be free of it, and he's having trouble doing it, right? Is he a victim? Yes. Is he an innocent victim? No. Do we care about him, love him, and, and believe he can be free of it? Absolutely. Right? Is that a sin of presumption where he goes, listen, God can say whatever he wants. Yeah, I believe in God, but I'm not doing this stuff. No, it's, in most cases, it's a sin of infirmity. She's too weak. Which is why we're supposed to invest in discipline in our spiritual life so that we can overcome sins of infirmity. But that's not a check as to whether or not we're actually Christians. If you just shrug your shoulders at stuff God obviously says is sinful, and you just do whatever you want, and then you say that you're a Christian, you are lying. And you're primarily lying to yourself. Which, the fourth one is an experience as the Spirit's anointing. And I can't explain exactly what this is like, but John uses it as, as an example in three places. That if you're a Christian and the grace of God is operating in your life, the Holy Spirit is indwelling you. And there is a kind of anointing where you know the truth when you hear it. And you know a deceiving voice when you hear it to a certain extent when it relates to the gospel. And your conscience has been reawakened in a certain spiritual way. And you're able to follow it. The fifth is, do, is do, that you don't love the world. There's a point, and by the way, I'm not saying by that, and John's not saying by that, that you shouldn't love creation. Like, if you love seeing mountains, that's not what it means to not love the world. You can love mountains. There's, you can love, you can even love food and other things that are fun and part of God's creative design of things. Loving the world in this context means the dynamics and choices of a world that does not live under God's rule and will not live under God's rule. Their values, what they believe in, what they enjoy, what they say is important, that you realize increasingly that that is divine treason and you don't love it. You're not captured by its gratificational luxuries. You don't think that the creation should be used in that particular way. That's not what your body is for or your life is for. And you see yourself growing increasingly free of that. And one example that that's happening, one subtest, <clears throat> is that you're growing increasingly incomprehensible to the world. If you are falling out of love with the world, the people who are themselves entirely situated within it will begin to look at you and think that you're strange. Now, it could be that you are just strange. That's, that's one possibility. I'm not saying it's the only—but one thing that will happen is people who are of the world, that is, it forms their worldview, it forms their self-understanding, they will look at you and the choices that you are making increasingly like you are incomprehensible to them. Right? Why you would not have premarital sex— before marriage doesn't make any sense to them. Why you would obey your parents when your parents are telling you not to do something that you jolly well want to do and that your friends approve of doesn't make any sense to them. Why you would use your, why you would give away a bunch of your money makes no sense to them. There are tons of things that Christians do as fundamental points of basic virtue and loving God and obeying his commandments that simply do—they just—they're incomprehensible. 
to people fully situated in the world. And if you make perfect sense to your non-Christian neighbors, friends, and coworkers, that is not a good sign. If they think you are super weird, that, that also may not be a good sign, but it may be a good sign if it's for the right reasons. And if you are growing out of worldliness, there will be the sense not only of people thinking you're strange, but people in the world will, will feel like your choices somehow threaten them because of insecurity. Also, six is don't walk in sin. And <clears throat> so John actually says a couple times, people who become Christians stop sinning. Now, what he means by that is this. In one place, he says they stop walking in sin. And that is essentially very similar to number three. It doesn't mean that you will not ever sin again. What it means is this, is you stop walking in sins of presumption. If you go back to the book of Leviticus, <clears throat> it says, in a couple of places in the sacrificial section, for a sin that was not intentional, it says that four times in chapter, I think two or three in Leviticus, that the sacrificial system was actually set up to atone for sins that weren't intentional, not for sins that were intentional. That is, there are lots of times where we sin just out of failure. Like, this is the best thing we could do, and we did this. And it, is that sinful? It's falling short of the glory of God in a way, but not really in a biblical way. But there are things where the Bible just says, don't do A. And we know it beforehand, and we just do it, and we just live like that. <clears throat> Walking in sins of presumption is what John means when he says, when we become a Christian, we don't continue to sin. You will have failures, and you will make mistakes. And throughout your life, because of your limitedness and our inability to see everything, there's things that we're going to do that where God would be like, oh, is that a sin? I don't, I don't know how he counts that. But it's not presumptuous. You're not being like, yeah, God hates this, and I'm just going to do it. Whatever. And I'm going to do it again tomorrow. What John is saying is if that's your attitude, you're not a Christian. If you, when you fail, you recognize it and you confess it and you turn to Jesus for forgiveness and you ask for him not only to forgive you but to strengthen you, to purify you of your love of that sin because you did it because you thought it would make you happy and feel secure, which means your worldview is all screwed up. So you ask for him to purify your heart and your mind about how you think and feel about the thing, but then also in terms of your constitution and your ability in terms of discipline to strengthen you so that you won't do it again. And to pray that he would bring around the people around you that would lead you into another way. Christians fail and they sin, but they respond and act and believe and see things so differently when they do because of God's grace and transformation. And then lastly, they, um, that we remain, overcome, and persevere. Um, and this is kind of important because, especially in churches like High Point, that were planted out of a fundamentalist Baptist tradition, um, fundamentalist Baptists have been particularly bad about this doctrine for about 120 years, give or take. And that is this. Um, the Bible teaches that when someone becomes a Christian, they're going to be saved, and they're, they're going to make it, and they're going to be in heaven. Okay, that's called the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. It's been believed for 2,000 years. Now, the, the mis here's the miscommunication. When it says, when, when I say, when somebody becomes a Christian, from whose perspective do I mean? If I had an altar call right now, which I'm not going to do, and somebody comes up and prays to receive Jesus, they believe they have just become a Christian, right? 
And God has a belief about this too. Either God believes they've become a Christian, or God doesn't believe they've become a Christian, right? The, do- the proper doctrine of the perseverance of the saints is that when somebody becomes a, qu- a Christian, from God's perspective, they receive the miracle of regeneration, they become a Christian, they receive justification, and they will, as a matter of providence, be kept by Jesus until the end. That's not the same thing as this person saying they've become a Christian. That automatically meaning they are one, and therefore will make it to the end. That's, that's sometimes referred to as once saved, always saved. But again, it's a confusion of who thinks you're saved. Because the New Testament is full of passages about self-deception in relationship to Christian salvation. This is what's so important. And if you believe the whole Bible, you have to put all these passages together. Jesus says, many will come to me in that day and say, Lord, Lord, didn't I do all this stuff? And he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. There's the passages that are in our doctrinal statement about complete, like, finishing with our salvation, working it out with fear and trembling. Make sure we don't fall short of the living God. Um, 2 Corinthians 13 says, to, to make sure that we are in the faith, right? That's a letter written to churches, not to people out in the, like, shopping mall, right? That's like me saying, listen, all of you who say you're Christians, let's make sure you're Christians. That's a, that's a statement in the Bible. John twice in five verses says, listen, it's so easy to deceive ourselves on this. And the reason why the Bible is full of that is because those who do receive the miracle of regeneration, those whom God saves, will, as an act of his providence, persevere to the end. That is, and the reason why that's important is this. If you accept Jesus, and then you go do whatever the heck you want, does that mean you're not a Christian? Just participatory. Does that mean you're not a Christian? Right? Here's what it means. It means you don't have any business feeling or believing in any sense of personal assurance. That's what it means. It, we, we can't know. That, that, this is the problem. We can't know if that person's not saved. Who knows what God's providence is going to drag them through and what will ultimately happen, and if they'll ultimately end in a state of faith and grace. We don't know that. Here's what we do know. If that guy, let's say his name is Bob, comes and accepts Jesus, and four months later he's just not, there's no evidence that anything has happened in him. Our, we, don't, we don't say, you're not a Christian. What we say is, listen, Bob, in order for you—and they're like, he's like, well, I'm a Christian, and that's kind of nice to be— and you'd be like, Bob, the doctrine of assurance, whether or not you can know your believer, is not entirely resting on whether or not you say you like Jesus one time in the past. To know that you're a Christian, that is, you are in the grace of God, there should be obvious evidence— of the grace of God at work in you. If there is no discernible evidence of all the things the Bible has told us is the evidence of God's work in someone, if we cannot discern that or perceive that in you, it may be possible that there's an incorruptible seed that's been planted that hasn't really flowered yet, and it's a little slow on the uptake growth, but what's much more likely is that whatever sense of assurance you feel is a false one. And that you need to come to Jesus. Let's do that right now. And so, <clears throat> that actually is the message of 1 John. And here's the thing. A cheaper version of assurance wouldn't ever really 
give you the security of standing you really require. It really wouldn't destroy your insecurity. To know that you are presently a child of God, that you are experiencing the, gr the growing light of being transformed into the image of Jesus, that whatever you still are in the sinful condition, you are being remade in the image of God. All of those things have to be bound up in a sense of security. You don't, you don't want to be a grace bandit. That's not going to give you a sense of security. The idea that, like, you did some, like, Jesus math and, like, pulled out of his bank account and sort of made it, but you're still going to be a, like, unrepentant, incandescent scumbag, that's not going to ground your sense of being. But the fact—but all of it together— that your sins are, can be forgiven in Christ. That you as a spiritually dead person can be regenerate. That God can demonstrate that from the foundations of the world, he chose and elected you to be saved. That he has poured his spirit into you and you possess an anointing in the Holy Spirit to be changed and to be filled and to always have God present with you. To know that in the sanctifying or transformational power of the Spirit, you are free from sin. You may not have walked out of the jail cell yet, but that lock is unlocked. And if you push on it, it will open. There is power of transformation in the gospel and in Christ and in the Spirit. Listen, if he can heal tumors, he can heal the problems with our insecurity. He can help with our fear and our pride. He can really change people. Part of the jail cell we live in is the fundamental pop psychological lie that people don't change. People don't change because people don't think people change. People change all the time. They get worse. If people didn't change, we'd all be like seven-year-olds. People constantly change. They change all the time. They change for the worse all the time. They can change for the better all the time, especially with the redeeming power of Jesus. I don't care what your dad was like. Believe in Christian salvation. Rooted in forgiveness and justification, but flowering in the spiritual authority of Christ, in the fullness of the Spirit, and the promise of sanctification, the claim of ultimate glorification, that we have no, that the fact that we have nothing to fear in judgment can obliterate our selfishness and enliven the ability to be self-sacrificial from the deepest possible place out of love. Because the funny thing about what John said was, is he said, I write this to you so that our joy might be complete. And when he wrote about salvation in, the, in those verses, he says, basically, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, and then it says this, we have fellowship, and you would think he would say, then if we walk in the light, as he's in the light, we have fellowship with God. But that's not what he says. He says, if we walk in the light, as he, Jesus, is in the light, we have fellowship with each other. You see, John's goal and Jesus' goal is ultimately a group of people with such secure standing 
that is flowing with a God-given effervescent security of happiness. That pride and fear can be put away and destroyed. That the way of Jesus and walking in the light can be so profoundly accepted by us together, each of us, that it produces a kind of fellowship, union, love that few humans ever experience, yet that every human was created for. And that will be the primary eternal joy of heaven. And he says the whole purpose, he wants us to believe the real gospel, to deal with the fear of judgment, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, to look and see whether or not we're self-deceived in our thinking about our salvation. The purpose of all of this is so that we can know and be loved by God, to experience the glory of being his children, and so out of that security to so love each other that we would have fellowship with each other and it would make our joy perfectly complete. We would experience the ultimate experience of the union of beings created in the divine image or as much as possible under what remains of the curse. I hope that you'll commit to this next seven weeks of the series, six weeks now, and I hope that you'll take really seriously this question of what is the evidence of the grace of God in my life? Do my friends see it? Does my family see it? Does anybody see it? Is it clear? Is, is the grace changing me? And if not, why not? Do I just misunderstand the gospel? I'm not applying it to have the security that I need, but I am a Christian? Or is it that there was something so profoundly defective in this, my, the self-satisfaction of my conversion event that I never became a Christian? And I need to come to Jesus. Or maybe it'll just be the joy of asking your friends in small group, do you see evidence of the grace of God with me in relationship to those seven things? And to have some of these people say, we totally see it. It's been happening to you since the day we met you. It's incredible. And you have a long way to go. (laughs) But we see the grace of God working in you. Because I think that's what a lot of you will experience if you open your hearts up to this. The purpose is so that our joy can be complete. And so that we will put ourselves in a place where Jesus can forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And that is not only in reflection to our sinfulness. That actually also means purify our lives, our being, our choice. Like, he can actually make us people who can walk in the light. Let's pray. Father, as we, um, as we consider these four pages in the Bible, I pray that everybody in this room would have the interest to read it and consider what it says on those four pages and how much you reveal about who we're meant to be and how strong we can be in you and how much literally every non-sleeping moment of our life, maybe even sleeping ones, depending on what would happen in our dreams if we were secure, could be so changed by being grounded in the most ultimate possible sense by seeing Christ make us his child in the place of death and judgment and freeing us from the real proper fear and trembling of all human existence and so to wipe out the lesser insecurities to put our hearts at peace to fulfill our joy with each other 
and to make us what we were meant to be. I pray, Father, that you would make us a people so secure in our standing in you that we would be incomprehensible to the world. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you all stand and sing with us?